Hello and welcome to Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson stories. I'm Curtis Robinson, your host. I'm joined Christopher Tidmore, who's recording us. He's our producer and uh, I guess recording today from beautiful Magazine Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. And welcome, Christopher. Oh, it is a privilege. It is uh, a bright and sunny day here overlooking the uh, one of the most historic streets in the United States and also a, a place that Hunter Thompson used to go up and down to visit every, um, shall we say, drinking establishment up and down. He loved this particular street. So, Oh, yes. And, 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 and folks can remember that... Uh, Christopher has produced uh, these shows before, but and he's actually been on telling his uh, Hunter story. But today we have a bit of an announcement because um, the first Hunter Gatherers documentary, it's called uh, the working title is Gonzo Goes to College, and it involves the many many times that Hunter Thompson lectured, if that's the correct term, or at least appeared and spoke on college campuses. Many, many times people have approached me in this line of work, and they've talked about meeting Hunter or attending one of his uh, campus visits. I think he probably did up to 30 total campus visits, and and I'm usually just uh, uh, for the money, to tell you the truth. But it's funny how it left a footprint almost everywhere. And uh, this film will be done with Hunter Gathers and our friends at Rhino Films. And with the cooperation of Wayne Ewing Films, uh, Wayne has been nice enough to offer to let us parouse his enormous archive, and including a, a couple times when he shot Hunter on campus. And um, Christopher, I, I do believe that one of those campus tours was uh, in New Orleans. It was at Tulane University. And, you know, it's funny. In the last two weeks, I've been on the Harvard campus, the, the Tulane campus, and I was with a bunch of people who were, went in the 80s to USC. And in all those cases, they basically says, I remember seeing Hunter Thompson speak here. Now, sometimes I wonder if they actually did or if it's just some sort of creative memory that everybody does. But it's amazing how when I've said, you know, I said, yeah, I'm doing this podcast, Hunter Thompson. The first reaction three different people had to me, one on the Harvard campus, one is, I remember when Hunter Thompson spoke here. And it was... Well, Hunter spoke at... Hunter spoke at, at, I know that the last, I think the last college appearance he made was in the mid-90s at Harvard Law. Yeah. Uh, driving with ability impaired case in Aspen, and he he, he he got the Harvard Law School to help him out with his uh, his defense. And that's one of the things that Wayne Ewing actually shot, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to, to to look at that and see see how that fits into our film, but uh, it's really exciting. You know, I've had this idea for years, though, and, and you're absolutely right. You run into people. One of the uh, in Portland, Maine, there's a great restaurant called the Great Lost Bear, and the two guys there. I noticed for the first time I went in, they they had hunter-ish, like a Gonzo menu kind of reference, and the two guys went to college together, and they were at a Hunter Thompson event. They were the campus handlers for Hunter. And that was sort of the genesis of, of and, and the fact that that could ripple through time and, and that there that's the reason they have this restaurant and that menu. It just struck me that this must happen all the time. And I, and I think it does, but you're right. I think a lot of people remember it. Certainly no one forgot it because probably they had to wait for him. I've never, I think the least late yet I've found so far is two hours. And um, I think it was five hours late at Duke. <laughs> um, you know, and if you waited for someone five, for five hours, you're pretty wound up, I would think. Well, and, and this is the kind of reaction that Hunter elicited from his readers. You either loved him, or if I can maybe so bold as somebody who loved reading him, 
you loathed him. There was kind of like <laughs> yes. you would wait all night yes, to I, see Hunter, or you hated everything about Hunter Thompson. And I've, it, it, as as an experiment, Curtis knows that I've been asking some very famous authors, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, what they thought of Hunter Thompson. And I've not gotten one, eh, it's nice. I've gotten either, oh God, I loved Hunter Thompson, I read his stuff, so on and so forth, or it, it, the reaction was not so positive. It was like I detested everything about him. But it was, it's, yes. it's, it's, I think that's Hunter's wisdom. You know, there's nothing unevenly yoked about Hunter Thompson and the people yes, who followed him, you know. Yes, yes, yes. He, he, he does bring up the extremes. I, I will say that. And uh, we'll begin on that part. I'm sure the, our, our guest today will uh, be part of the film as we go forward. Uh, we're joined by returning champion, Matt Mosley. And we're joined by him in a rather unorthodox way. So, yes, yes. Uh, this is a very unorthodox way, but I love it. So Matt has uh, appeared in previous episodes talking about his close relationship with Hunter Thompson. He's, of course, the author of a book, Dear Dr. Thompson, about, about the Fourth Amendment work he was doing, the court case that Curtis was referencing earlier. And he's written a lot. He was a very close friend and editor, just like uh, Curtis was, of Hunter's work. But Matt had an interesting side. He has a new book out called Ignition. And he's talked about this on this program. What Matt consented to do for us is read the passage of why the book is called Ignition. And Ignition is a reference, if I'm not mistaken, Curtis, to what Hunter wanted for his funeral. Something about Yeah, it's one of the things I probably I probably get asked about the memorial because Hunter's ashes were literally shot out of a cannon. And people read about it and people remember it uh, vividly. So Matt was in charge, probably as much in charge of the chaos as, as anyone could be. And he was in charge of the press, and it was a tight ship. No one was getting in. Uh, it was friends and, and family, and it was a hard, hard ticket. And this is about his uh, – It's we should say that Ignition is about Matt's work in general, but, but you know, the Hunter part is a chapter within it. And, and the Ignition part, you know, uh, well, it's a fantastic story, and, and, and Matt – Tells it well, I'll say that. And now, to, to set this up as well, you have to understand, so Matt Mosley was kind enough to launch his book at the Garden District Bookshop in New Orleans, which we'll talk about in future episodes. We're making an effort to have the largest collection of Hunter Thompson writings available for sale in the country. But he, he came, and Matt decided that he wanted a, a mutual friend of he and Curtis's to, to come and perform, Papa Stomper. The thing that was interesting about this is Papa Stomper is listening to the story, and he thinks the only way to tell a Hunter Thompson story, recite a Hunter Thompson story, is to do it to music. So it almost comes off as a lyric poem, and that's why we have the recording as opposed to Matt actually talking about this. It is... Yeah, and the, and, the next, and the next time we do that kind of thing, we'll have a documentary release in case we use it. <laughs> <laughs> we really should, because we've got a video of all this, and it really comes in. So what we're going to do, folks, is to wrap up this episode, we're going to have Matt Mosley read and tell his perspective on what it was like to plan. He planned it with Johnny Depp, what it was like to plan the funeral of Hunter S. Thompson. And, of course, it has to start with Bill Murray and a certain item, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yes, a certain item indeed. So, <laughs> with that no- with that note, here is Matt Mosley and Pompa Stomper and the ignition, the shooting of the ashes of Hunter S. Thompson. Before long, Bill Murray walks waltzing across the floor with a blow-up sex doll. Yon winner from Roll 
Orange Dome was gritting ear to ear, high on psilocybin chocolates in the shape of a gonzo fist. The Denver Post had reported that Lynn Goldstein, the rock and roll photographer who toured with the Rolling Stones, had to be taken out on a stretcher, which was not actually true. The event was divided into two parts. The first part was ceremonial. Everything, including the monument, was draped in black. There were a few remarks. A Japanese drum band slowly built to a crescendo as the shroud, stretching higher than the Statue of Liberty, was slowly sucked up into the belly of the monument for the grand unveiling. And kudos to John Eckes, the stage master and producer. Eckes, who had helmed numerous Oscars production, among other Hollywood events, was well-practiced in the art of the reveal. The monument was custom-designed and handcrafted in Los Angeles by a company design centers, and four oversized 18-wheel trucks drove the finished pieces to Aspen for assembly. The building of the monument and event were chronicled in an excellent documentary by Wayne Ewing called When I Die. Sam Belly Fireworks warned her that the explosions would be just below that level of a sonic boom, which incidentally required me to issue a press release for a small pet advisory to Woody Creek residents, which meant more press, more attention, and more drama. The big moment had arrived. Cue to Norman Greenbaum's 1969 anthem, Spirit in the Sky, the first fireworks screamed into the night, illuminating upward-facing gazes. A minute of black sky followed, building suspense, and we grew more and more impatient every second. And finally, towards the tail end of the song, Hunter's ashes were blasted out into the night. It wasn't just a funeral. It was a celebration of a literary style and an entire approach to looking at the world. The funeral had to embody the contradictions of the man himself. A saint, a sinner, an author was the first one to put himself into the story in a modern way, elevating journalism beyond an he said, she said dichotomy. As the sun started to rise, my wife Kristen and I, along with Steve Cohn, supervised the building of the monument, his running partner, Mako, who was the former manager of the Viper Room in Los Angeles, my friend and attorney, Tom Ward, and his wife, Drew Nielsen, who had arranged a plea deal for Lisa Allman to get out of jail. There was the future mayor, my friend, Tori, my cousin, Glenn, aka Mango, give him a shout out. We all piled into Hunter's red shark. It was a replica of the convertible he drove on that fateful trip that inspired fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Behind us, dawning light silhouetted the massive Gonzo Monument against the mountains of the Lorraine Fort Valley. We're on the road to nowhere, someone shouted. We howled with laughter, gave cheers and hugs. Exhausted from weeks of intense round-the-clock work, we marveled at the sheer magnitude of what had just transpired. These are the moments when the deepest friendships are forged. That night, my quote to BBC Radio 
was with the full moon rising over Woody Creek, there was no finer place to be on the entire planet as Hunter S. Thompson's ashes were shot out into the ether. The New York Times came out just a two days after the funeral with Hunter's picture on the front page as a teaser. And then it filled up most of A4 with a story from Cat Seeley. It read, At the entry to what could only be described as a Hollywood set, his portrait was hung at the center of his personal literary solar system, surrounded by the planets of Samuel Coleridge, Joseph Conrad, William Faulkner, Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Henry Miller, John Steinbeck, and Mark Twain. This single paragraph of the New York Times put Hunter smack dab in the bullseye of literary pantheon. He was famous before, but now he was a legend. Seeley wrote, by nightfall, scores of fans had gathered at the nearby Woody Creek Tavern and outside the gate to the property. Sheriff's deputies said that numerous people had tried to crash the scene, but were escorted away. She reported on the BBC documentary in which Hunter described in detail how he wanted his ashes dispersed. And she wrote, the silky red dressing around the monument slowly unpeeled itself, revealing the rocket-like structure embedded with a deck. It was crowned by Mr. Thompson's logo, a two and a half ton fist with two thumbs, a psychedelic peyote button pulsating at its center, a Dago's, Dago's sight visible for miles around. And I especially appreciated this last part. The reveal, which was no small effort, that it made it into the times. This was another valuable lesson I took away from the funeral. A key tactic in getting people to care involves choreography with which the concept is introduced. First impressions mean everything. As our friend Tommy G understood when he created the Microsoft Butterfly, oohs and ahs are the tender of caring. The firing of the ashes from the Gonzo Monument was not just a metaphor for the concept of ignition. In reality, it was an act of ignition itself. That ignition with a capital I, as we learned in fluid mechanics, ignition creates power. The ash blast wasn't just a funeral. This was an exercise in getting people to care. How do you inspire one to think once more about Hunter Thompson as an author and elevate their appreciation of his unique contributions to American literature? Well, you blow his ashes out of a cannon. <laughs> Every literature student who researches Hunter S. Thompson will read those lines from Catherine Seeley in the New York Times. But to reserve Hunter's rightful place in the pantheon of American writers, we didn't have to say anything at all. Blowing him out of the 157-foot-tall fist made the point more eloquently than any words ever could have. So, rest ipsa locator. Thank you all very much. I guess that pretty much says it all. Uh, well, well put, Matt and and Christopher. I guess we'll leave it at that. If you got anything to add, I just want Johnny Depp to pay three million dollars for me to have it be shot out of a cannon. That that has to be that one of the best things of all time. So I just leave it at that. And only Hunter could have a funeral quite like this.
And I would also point out that it was one of two. <laughs> That's true. That's true. One of two. I do know, Curtis, that you're trying to make this a, um, a more regular thing. Hopefully we'll have a new episode of Hunter Gatherers for everyone each week coming on. <laughs> and so remember to join us every Sunday at midnight for a new episode. I'm Christopher Tidmore. And I'm Curtis Robinson. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>